0: Hello everyone, it's Jerry at the Fledge, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 10 of Every Damn Day, and um, I'm excited for my guest today. We've become, I think, pretty good friends really, really fast, Uh, so over the last... uh, I don't know, six months or something like that, and can't wait to bring her on. But before all of that, I just want to uh, talk about a few events that we have coming up this week. I want to always remember the uh, Refuge Recovery that's every Monday night at 630. And now uh, Lansing Hoops is coming inside Hula Hoop and do all the things they do with that on Monday night. So uh, that is uh, radically inclusive. So anybody who wants to come learn about that, come learn about that. And then tomorrow we've got our uh, Tech Tuesday where we're basically setting up tables with different types of tech. Um, for people to just come in and play with and experiment. So, tomorrow we'll have 3D printers, some music producing stuff, and uh, smart home technology for us to set up a small solution here at the Fledge. And then Thursday we've got our crypto ecosystem meeting 12 to 2. And then Thursday night, 99 problems, but a pitch ain't one. So I'll talk about more events as we go through the week, but uh, I'm too excited to have my guest on. So I'm going to bring my good friend Shara on. How are you doing?
1: Hi there. How's it going, Jerry? So happy to be here today.
0: Oh, I'm glad you're able to do it. I know it's freezing outside and the work you do is tough right now. And uh, you're down in Dansville uh, making it happen
1: yes and it's it's especially tough today because I'm not feeling well but you know it's it is what it is you know just like you have every damn day on the show as a livestock farmer you know you don't get days off you have to feed your animals and water them no matter what it's there's a different level of stewardship when you have livestock farming because you know the animals don't ask to be penned up and and so you have a a certain really high level of responsibility for them to make sure that they're taking care of especially in these extreme temperatures you know and so um not feeling well feeling well it's kind of like marriage it's like uh you know um you make you come in and you make a commitment to your partner no matter how you're feeling to act in their best interest and to take care of them and it's the same thing with the animals it's that like that level of commitment that no matter how you're feeling today that you're gonna be out there um, actually it's so funny um, another farmer she has an orchard came out to my farm recently and she's like you need to start taking days off like I've scheduled days off and you can do that in vegetables you can do that in orchard you cannot do that in livestock and so if somebody's coming to be a livestock farmer that's something they have to be ready to know that it one it's intense and animals sometimes will do things that you least expect them to do and two it's a daily commitment unless you can afford to pay someone to replace you in that daily commitment.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I love the word that you, uh, um, uh, use there, steward. You're, you're not the manager of the farm. I mean, there is a job called that and you're not the leader of the animals. You are the steward of the community of all these living systems together
1: that's exactly it and that and I think stewardship is a really different level of responsibility and commitment than a management the managers just doing what is needed to make sure everything is running a steward actually cares about the members of the community and really mm-hmm. wants to to bring out their best and, and to give them their best. Um, and so I think they' both of them are caretakers but there's a different level of responsibility and commitment with managing something just to make sure it's running efficiently. And stewardship where you actually care about all members of the ecosystem and yeah. you want to
0: as well. Yeah. That's uh I knew that about you the second I met you. Oh, uh, oh. Let, <laughs> let's uh let's get into the story of you. What, what what story would you like to tell us today?
1: Well, you know, I'm I'm pretty simple. Um, I was born on the island of St. Lucia. Um, business major, finance background, first job out of college. I was a trader. Then I worked as an investment banker for large corporate banks, um, for Chase, went on to become a high net worth wealth manager for Merrill Lynch. Then be went on to PNC bank for a regional manager for the private client's service for a while. And then I left it all and I became a farmer.
0: So that sounds kind of cushy. Was that, you know, that's not every damn day, is it? Or is it? or And that's not out in the cold.
1: I, joke, I, I, I always joke that the finance world, especially trading and investment banking, kind of prepares you for that serious work ethic where you know every damn day you have to do something because um, finance, it, it's no joke. It's no joke. They, they push you, they push you, they push you. But I have to say that that coming out of, College and having that kind of pressure, it kind of prepares you. And in that intensity, it kind of prepares you for the intensity of livestock farming, right? Mm. Be- because you know, but the difference is, like, instead of doing soul sucking work, and in a in a, a an environment where you're being pushed to to that level of intensity because you you're competing against people that have no life and have stay at home wives that and they all they care about is work to I'm there and I want to take care of my animals and I'm doing something good and I'm being I'm making change and I'm making positive changes in the environment I'm making positive changes for my family and I'm making positive changes for the community that's a really different level a di- the, so the catalyst so it's both of them are seriously intense but the catalyst that drives you forward to that level of intensity is different there's mm. caring and then there's I better do this or I'm going to lose my job kind of thing,
0: you know. Uh, So it sounds like one's more mechanical, if you will, and you're doing the things that you know you have to do to make this happen. And the other is more uh, maybe not as mechanical. It's you've got to react right then to, well, I guess both of them. Yeah.
1: Both of them are reactive and take a lot of thought. You know, know, when you're on the trading floor, um, it's, what have you done for me in the last five seconds? So it doesn't matter how many great trades you've done. You have to make sure that you can execute and execute well. And if you make one mistake, it could be it, it, it could be pretty costly. And so you have to make sure you're looking at everything and you're dotting your T's and you're crossing your I's and you know your calculations. And you have to be able to create formulas in your head to be able to execute quickly and efficiently, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, if you don't do that, you're not going to do well. That's- I like.
0: I kind. I kind of learned to not try to predict the future. Yeah. By a trader who said something once that he could not predict the next fifteen minutes, let alone the next three to five years. Like they would ask you for a bank loan or something.
1: Absolutely, you cannot. You, it's and that's the thing is that it. That's the level of intensity. You're moving from moment to moment and momentum, and you have to be able to make calculations based on the momentum that you see in that current. So you have to be observing everything that's going on and being able to look at all those factors and make a decision really quickly to execute and think of all of these different factors. And how do I, um, Execute something that's going to give me the best outcome of all of the factors that I'm seeing right in this five seconds Right. And so that that's one of the reasons why you have to be able to make those calculations and those deductions And so that kind of deductive reasoning kind of prepares you. It's the same thing with investment banking, right? When you're Mm -hmm. out there things change very quickly, Um, you know, it's kind of it's and especially like when I was a private wealth manager um, I was working for high with clients and so accredited investors. So we're doing a lot of work in the commodities market. And if you talk about things that change very quickly, commodities market will change in a dime, right? And so you have to constantly. And so what it's kind of taught me is to be able to look at factors and be able to make an evaluation and, and be able to kind of make the next step to kind of get the best thing. And I think you have to do that in farming, too at least if you're doing farming science based farming which is the best kind of farming right and i think organic farming forces you to do that because you can't be reliant you can't use the crutches of all these antibiotics and outside little tools and crutches that allow you to be able to kind of skirt through things you have to be able to understand exactly what's going on with your soil with your land with your animals observing them on a regular basis so every time so I mean, I do headcounts and welfare checks in the morning and in the night, but throughout the day, every single time that I get out there, you're look. Good morning, buddy. I'm I'm on the phone. <laughs> That's my son Dominic. <laughs> you're my your mom. <mama. laughs> Good
0: morning. Yeah, yeah. Hi, Dominic. I love Dominic, man. I've met him. I don't know a few times now, and he's always uh, made me feel super happy inside.
1: He's a, he's a, he's an angel. I don't deserve him. I definitely don't deserve him. He's really. <laughs>
0: Yeah.
1: But what I was saying is, like, with organic farming, you have to learn your animals so well that you know what their regular behaviors are so that if there's a change, you can evaluate whether or not that changes just because pigs have personalities and they go through life cycle changes like you have toddler pigs. I would say that when they're in their terrible twos. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> like young piglets sometimes are, like, the literal worst. <laughs> so... <laughs> they get up, they get into such hijinks, but, um, and take a lot of sometimes a lot of management, but you know, um, it's understanding that and being able to look at that behavior and say, okay, that behavior has changed. What's the reason for that? And then looking at, looking at that behavioral change, observing things like, you know, their coat, their eye color, what their eyes look like, are they sunken in the color of their nose, the color of their tongue, you Know so being able to look at those things and um being able to make an evaluation is that is something going on that I need to because you have to be really proactive in organic farming because if you're reacting, you're behind the eight ball and it becomes kind of challenging to be able to manage things efficiently, and so there's a constant need for that. So, yeah, um, I like I said, I grew up in St. Lucia, um, my grand uncle was an environmentalist, and um. My grandfather died when uh, my mom was young, and then my father died when I was young. And um, my granduncle kind of took me under his wing and he recognized uh, that I loved animals and I loved outdoors and I loved that kind of thing. And when he realized that, I he kind of took me and and I was like their little mascot, you know, like all these environmentalists and biologists and stuff like that. They liked me coming out there, met some really cool people. like environmentalists from around the world and learned a lot of things, you know. And so, um, and I wanted to get into that, but my mom was like, you know, they live a semi-nomadic life. They don't really make money. Um, You're good at math. I need you to go to business school. And so I went to business school and then I did what I was doing. And then I now I'm farming. And, and I mean, it's just, I think I'm a lot happier. I mean, that being said, you know, the intensity um, of doing this farming a lot of times by myself um, is challenging. And some days you have to make decisions because it's not every day that it's, oh my goodness, oh, I just love to farm. It's another great day of farming. It's not always like that. And so you have to have that mindset no matter what happens no matter what you're feeling, I'm just moving forward. And I think you also tend to see a greater purpose besides yourself because um, for me, you know, I'm the only black livestock farmer in the state of Michigan, right? And so- Will you say that again? I'm the only black livestock farmer in the state of Michigan. And I, mean, I
0: think- That's impactful, one. And,
1: and it's crazy. It sounds crazy. But I think one of the things that it kind of illustrates is a lot of underlying factors. Um, one, land access is a problem. And with livestock farming, you have to have land and you have to have lots of it and you have to have land in rural areas and you have to have community support in rural areas for you to be able to do that. How many, with black farmers, that's, that's super problematic with the legacy that we have in the current situation. Um, and then I think, you know, another thing that has also kind of made it, farming not attract, as attractive for for African-Americans is that when you look at that, they were forced into manual labor and doing farming things. So then the, the now the, that they no longer are forced into that, the, the litmus test for upward mobility for them is the white-collar dr- collar jobs that they were previously denied, right? And so a lot of them don't see farming as that. And so one of the things I want to try to do is make farming sexy again. For the african-american right because Uh, i think that um the african-americans care about their food they want to be empowered through their food systems and but it's just kind of creating those opportunities and making it sexy and attractive for young people so that they can see it as a viable career right and that's the big thing
0: right and we've got to knock down a lot of well first of all let me go back to that I hadn't thought of it that way before, and I'm glad that you expressed it here to me because you just taught me a ton about the mindset, maybe, in the farming career, farming path. Whatever. And that's
1: just an assumption on my part. I can't speak for I can't speak for every African American because some of them might say, oh, "Well, you're not American," although I've been a citizen since 2011. But I so and I've lived in America actually longer than I lived in Saint Lucia, right? Um, yeah. At this point in time, in my in this juncture in my life, I've lived in the U.S. longer than I lived in Saint Lucia. But um, I, I think looking at their at the experience, um, and I also even looking at my experience, um, not because my that was a problem for my family, because background wise, I actually have people from both sides of the the, the system on. In my family, right, growing up, we had plantation houses in the south that belonged to my family, mm-hmm. and lands like we that were used. So we had slave owners and slaves, and that's the, I think that's the unique thing about in the Caribbean is that when you come from the colony, I'm going to tell you the British didn't really care who you were. Like you, they sent black people, they sent white people, they sent Chinese Indians. Everybody was sent out to the colonies to work. And so we have a shared legacy of slavery that's different than the legacy of slavery, Um, not to mention slavery ended like 200 years before it did in the U.S. for us, Mm. right? And so when you talk about the fact that we have people whose great-grandfather was a slave, that's not... The, the, the separation between slavery and current times for the Caribbean person is a very, very different experience. And so I don't want to negate that and I don't want to claim that I know what it is, but I've also been living as a black person in America. And so I think I've kind of experienced some of those things and especially living as a black farmer now in America, it, it becomes even more apparent. Yeah. And that experience becomes even more intense and intensifies. And so, um, and then seeing my daughter, you know, um, it was really something. Um, my daughter's um, college admissions essay um, for U of M, actually, she wrote in it her experience as a black person and in the U.S. and how what it was like to be a black person, but a, the back a black person whose mom is an immigrant, right? Mm. And I raised her as a single mom, right? And she said that we didn't necessarily talk about the black American experience. And in her essay, she says, but she realizes that I didn't really talk about the black American experience because I was learning and experiencing the black American experience at the same time that I was raising her, Mm. right? And so she talked about um, that she felt like if she'd had an American mom, who had kind of gone through that, the experience and the hurt that she would have experienced coming into a rural area like Mason, because um, it was kind of very telling because when we lived in Columbus, she went to St. Andrew's school and she was one of two black children there. But in her essay, she says that she never even realized the difference between her um, and the, the blackness because no one ever really brought it up. It wasn't something that was discussed. It wasn't something that she had to ever, because all of the kids, they went to school at the same time. Um, you know, They went to school from pre-K up to seventh grade, when, which was when we moved to Michigan. And they all went to school together and that was never discussed. But then when she came to Mason, she was confronted in a, with her blackness in a very different way than she had ever experienced in her life and how the, the hurt and the damage it did to her self-esteem and her response and so seeing that and kind of understanding from my daughter's standpoint and i am already experiencing the black american experience but seeing it through my daughter's eyes and seeing some of the damage from a self-esteem standpoint and 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 it it, it's 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 very telling so
0: i'm i'm so sorry about that uh i mean you, you always think that racism, well, people in the North try to act like racism's always in the South, and it's not, it's just really hidden up here and all of that nastiness. Um, I want to, I'm going to actually try to see if I can find some research on that, because I think your hypothesis you just presented is, it might be true. And I'd like to see if there is some data about the hesitancy, if you would, of Black farm or black people getting into farming because of um, the forced labor. I, that's a very interesting uh, yeah. thing. I think you've said
1: because when somebody is forced into something, right? Whenever they're not forced into it, that thing becomes the least attractive thing for them, right? Because they're like, I don't want right. to do that. I was forced to do that. So that for them, the litmus test for their upward mobility and the change in their life. Is being able to access those things that were previously denied, right? And that's right. just my 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 thought process, you know. Um, and you know, manual labor is never really it, it has not always been sexy. Ever, people see farmers as not necessarily a, a, a wonderful thing, and and they and educated and um, understanding. And there's there's a, a complete disconnect to that because. I can tell you that I know that a lot of the farmers, especially in the organic movement, and I know some of them are engineers. Like you have um, the guy at country, like a lot of them have some pretty, a lot of them are coming in and doing a lot of science and stuff like that. And coming from engineering backgrounds and math backgrounds and things like that. And are coming into farming as a second career. That's, I've seen that evolution happening. Not to say that the farmer has been doing it forever and knows the soil. They've had an education on the land. That's different. That's. Mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes the education on the land we tend to kind of discredit it in favor of the education um, in the classroom. And I don't necessarily think that that's a fair um, disc, Like, I don't think that's a fair discrediting because I think that there's a lot of value in both.
0: Yeah, so if that's only one obstacle, right? <laughs> To getting to, you know, how are you the only uh, black farm or livestock farmer in Michigan? There's that, but then there's also you had said you needed land and you needed uh, the community support and all of the things that are not easy in the rural areas. They're not easy anywhere in America, as you just pointed out, but they're also not, they're, they're, they're even harder in the rural spots. So it's usually a white community. Legacy land is generational wealth and equity. Will you yes. speak to that a bit?
1: Absolutely. And and one of the things that when you look at um, borrowing for farming, traditional banks and credit unions don't lend for farms. They don't do farm lending. So there are not many places that you can get lending for a farm, right? And the places that lend for a farm want you to have like 10 plus years or come from a legacy farm family, right? Mm -hmm. And then you even look at the USDA program, which is for beginning farmers. They want you to have three years of farm ownership or, um, three years of, um, decision-making experience on a farm. When you look at the problem and how few black farms there are in Michigan, how that policy basically excludes 99% of the applicants that it's supposed to be helping. And so when you say that the, your, the aim of your policy is to make a change, but your policy and your rules make that change almost impossible, you have to really evaluate what are you, re- are you really working for the change or you want to have the semblance of help and none of the actual help. Because I think a lot of times, people want to have the semblance of good, right? We were talking about there's good doing good because it's the right thing to do, and there's doing good because you want other people to see that you are supposed to be doing good and have the perception of your goodness, but not have the actual goodness, right? And that's one of the things we were talking about, how, what were you gonna say?
0: Well, I was just, I think, It's something called like value blasting or something like that, where people just, you know, they love the press release that they're doing this program. But then there's another never another press release of how a black farmer opens a new farm or how a black farmer gets this success story because of the program. But that first press release makes them all look good and feel good. And they can reference it from time to time. The photo op.
1: Semblance of good with none of the follow up and none of the action, and that's the that's the the thing. It said, "Where are the evaluations and the assessments to determine whether or not the actual good is happening?" And we were talking about that with vulnerable people, right? Um, it's not uh, just because, like, please. hello, did I lose you, Jerry? I don't know if I lost you. You're frozen, Jerry. Hello, Jerry, Jerry. Hello, Jerry, Jerry, can you hear me better without my video? Jerry, can you hear me?
0: Jerry. Okay. Sorry about that, everyone. I don't know if you can actually still hear me. Here we come.
1: Here we go back again.
0: again. All right. Now we're great. And now- I just wanted to uh, uh, mention that. You are you are in kind of a, a rural dead spot. This is why Wi-Fi and internet access and technology access is so important to push out into rural areas. Um, so sorry about that, everybody. But now we're back. Go back to you. where you were at.
1: Thank you so much for the patience. I appreciate that. But we were talking about vulnerable people and um, the the whole thing. Like you know, um, there are many people. Um, that prey on vulnerable people, and you know, um, and they prey on people that they think don't have the ability to let people know of that badness. So they will, and when they prey on those vulnerable people, they will act good and have all the semblance of good, but with the wrong intentions. But they prey on people whom yeah. they think have the access or the mouthpiece mm-hmm. to be able to say, Hey, this has been done to me, right? Um, and I've experienced that multiple times. Um, when I moved here, like I said, a really good, um, net solid friend network. Um, and as a migrant, it's hard to build those networks. because you don't have natural systems of net support because you don't have family here, right. Especially as a first generation migrant, you don't have that. Right. And then, um, you right. come, you, you then you, I came here and my, ex-husband didn't have many friends and I was building up a farm and working full time and supporting him and did not really have the time to be able to go out there and make friends and build a network. Now with everything, as things are starting to sell up, settle, I've been able to build a pretty good solid support system. And I think if things happened the way they did before, the outcome would have been different. right? because I have a support system. right? But because with his family and him been willing to do the things that they did to me, if they knew that someone was going to hold them accountable, they wouldn't, right? And yeah. that's what vulnerable people, the problem. In the same situation I had with the rental where we had nowhere to go, right? Um, this realtor came in and pretended that she was my friend and she wanted to help me get out into situation. Um, put me in a situation, a really bad situation. My friends had to come out and, um, you know, clean up feces with me in barns for me to bring my animals and bring my things in, and there were damages. And um, they waited until we were in the house to say, hey, you know what, Um, we need you to sign this. And I questioned it and said, hey, you know, the things aren't really done. And they're like, oh, no, no, this is just a formality. We know that there are damages. We won't hold you to it. But if you don't sign it, you have to leave. And and I have my family. I have two children, including a special needs child that has had so many issues from moving around from place to place. And of course, my daughter, even though she's a normal child, still had problems from moving and bouncing from place to place. We have nowhere to go. It's winter, right? And I have my animals. And so I signed it. And then, lo and behold, they Go ahead and hold me accountable for those things, knowing that I didn't cause those damages. And then Michigan law, of course, doesn't protect the renters. So I didn't know that if you didn't leave a forwarding address, even if they have your phone number and they have ways to contact you, they're not required to contact you. And if you don't provide a forwarding address within 60 days, you have forfeited your security deposit.
0: Yeah, so they cut my security is, that is and- so horrible
1: is that I didn't cause right now Would these people have done that if I was someone that they saw had a support system just like my ex-in-laws they wouldn't have done that right right? Right. and that's one of those things I I always say to my daughter hey uh,
0: so you go keep going
1: oh no I was just saying I always say to my daughter um i don't care who it is that you're interacting with them i want them to know that you have someone behind you and somebody who's going to talk very loudly right because i want i never want her to be and i said no matter what goes down i don't care what goes down i'm so
0: we've got to wrap up
1: oh i'm sorry oh yeah let's wrap up yes
0: Oh. no, that's okay. Um, but I'm glad that you're saying that networking connection, it's the opposite of everything bad. And the more. So how can we help you? We got to go fund, it, fund me. We'll find that link and put it out underneath the show. Um, I yes. know that for sure. What we can support you at any farmer's markets right now or
1: we're not going to be in the farmer's markets until the spring. Um, It's just too cold and bringing um, There's too much product loss for us to be able to do it. So we're not really doing that. We can um, do on-farm appointments, Um, you know, but we, you know, because I work full time, I also have my family and I have to protect my children and our privacy. I do not, it's not good for people to just show up and explore in our home. That's not, okay. Um, we, we, we prefer that you contact us and make, um, arrangements, um, and we'll be happy to try to accommodate it. Um, but you know, we're always looking for volunteers. Um, we would love to have people come out and help us do things and, um, that's good. We, we do need a lot of financial support to get to the next level. Um, that would be great. But, you know, just people out there supporting us and sharing our story. And um, I think showing us that showing that we have that backing makes us less vulnerable for people who would do bad things to take advantage of us.
0: all right so i'm going to get a bunch of links out there and put some of what you just said and people in case people couldn't um hear it completely because the audio might have been going in and out i'm not quite sure but i'll listen to it and get it fixed too hey much love uh, to you and much what you're love doing. to you
1: one last thing i wanted to say is if anybody has any shipping container contacts that they can get me i need some 40 foot high cube shipping containers um and I need them at a good price. The prices on the market right now are just super ridiculous. Um, if anybody has that contact, please reach out. I'm happy to to talk to you and um, need your help. Thank you.
0: Yeah, shipping containers are the the critical uh, point here. That's like the next thing that if you have that, a lot breaks open for you. So. We'll get all of that out there. Sarah. thank you so very much for taking the time with us today. And we will see everybody tomorrow on another episode of Every Damn Day. See y'all. Bye. Right, Bye, Sarah. All right. Take care. Bye.